Good morning. I want to add my Thanksgiving and Christmas wishes to each and every one of you. My wife and I, Kelly, yesterday got to sneak out on a gorgeous day here in the Atlanta area to go play a little bit of golf. And while we were out there, we saw a flock of nine wild turkeys. And when I drew near to them, I said, you made it, guys. You made it through the most dangerous season of the year for you. And so we cheered them on as they flew away from us and fled uh, our errant golf shots. So, uh, so glad that you're here and joining us, whether you're in the sanctuary here or whether you're online. And isn't it wonderful to get to see the Christmas decorations come up? I mean, especially this year. We don't take this celebration for granted. And we hear the songs and we deck the halls. And, and yet, if we're honest, it, especially as we go about in the world, the the, the true meaning of Christmas, a word that means the worship of Christ, the worship of the anointed one, it remains hidden from our sight a lot of the times, obscured from view. I mean, we hear the songs on the radio or on our loudspeakers, and, and as we do, it's, it's often, if you just substitute the worship of Christ every time you hear the word Christmas, you're like, I don't think they know what they're singing about. And so what we're hoping to do is to reveal Christmas over the course of the next series of messages. We're going to talk about those irreducible questions and dimensions of any investigation or any story. Any journalism 101 major can tell you that there's the who, what, when, where, and why. And that's what we're going to look at over the next five messages to see if that hidden meaning of the worship of Christ might come alive for you and for me. Now, any teacher who's going to teach you to write something or to speak something is going to say that the most important thing that you say is the first thing that you say. That it not only captures the attention, but it also sets the tone for what you're trying to say. And so when you think about the most famous books that you've ever read, there are famous opening lines. Will you say some of these with me? This first one here, say it with me. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Turn to somebody next to you and guess where that's from. See if you can reach back into your English lit and figure that out. Somebody shouted out, who is the author of this? It's Dickens, right? Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Let's get another one up here on the screen. You didn't know you were going to get tested in a sanctuary. Say this with me, all children except one grow up. Turn to somebody next to you and see if you can guess who this is, the opening line of what famous book and author. What's the book of this one? This is Peter Pan by Jim Barr, right? Okay, here's another one. Say this with me, I love saying this in church. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Turn to somebody next to you and guess who wrote this. This is definitely, as a choir member is enthusiastically saying, Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice. And we'll get one a little more modern here. Say this with me, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Anybody guess who this is? Harry 
This is Harry Potter. So this is the first in that long series of books. The first thing that you say is the most important thing that you say. It is the thing that sets the tone for everything else that you will say. And so as we come to the first gospel, when you think of this first revelation of the book of Matthew, how does the gospel of Matthew begin for us? It begins like this. I won't make you read it with me. I'll read it for you. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminabab, and Amminabab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Are you tracking with me? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa, and Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoam, and Jehoam the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud. Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Can you believe that's how Matthew starts? The first thing you say is going to be the most important thing. Okay, I got it. I got the ultimate page-turning opener in history. And yet he starts with a genealogy. I mean, Matthew has the most famous ending of all of the Gospels. I mean, Matthew's the one at the very end that it says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's how it ends, those words famous and ring true, and yet it begins with a genealogy lesson. Why on earth would Matthew start like that? I don't know if any of you have done 23andMe or one of the ancestry equivalents, but I have found it fascinating and found that it's fascinating that the more people that do it, that also they refine the report. And it gets even more geographically 
specific. I called my parents before I did 23andMe and said, if you have something to tell me, now is the time. (laughs) They said they weren't aware of anything, but I was the first in my family to do this, and there was a little bit of a surprise. Let me show you the report. The report was not a surprise, and that I knew that I was from Germany and that the other half of the family was from the British Isles. But we didn't know that, that there was not only the German, but also that there was French and German from Switzerland, which I feel like I need to go visit my roots right now because it's in Switzerland. And then we didn't know specifically in the British Isles that they were from London and from Dublin. And then, then we got to this Eastern European dimension here of Polish and Russian and 0.2% Ashkenazi Jewish. That is why you can call me rabbi and not just pastor. <laughs> and then there's this trace ancestry somewhere six to eight generations ago. There is 0.1% Korean. Boy, wouldn't you love to know that story? What was going on six to eight generations ago that that was the case? I find this fascinating. One of the best conversations I've had about 23andMe was with my uh, predecessor, Vic Pence, and his wife, Becky Pence. You know Becky to, uh, to be you know, a specialist in medical ethics, and she does a lot of work with um, these types of things, and she was kind of skeptical about this whole 23andMe thing, and so she sent it off, and she wasn't expecting to her- learn a whole lot, and that she reported she was so excited to say that she found something out about her ancestry that she never knew about. She knew that this was a region that her family was from, but that she discovered that, that 10,000 years ago, her family was from this location. It's known as Doggerland. Did you even know that there was a thing called Doggerland? That 10,000 years ago plus, that there was a land bridge between what is now the United Kingdom and France, that you could actually walk on dry land from one place to the other, and that her ancestry is from this place that doesn't exist anymore except for under under the sea. And she was absolutely amazed by what she discovered. Now, for, for Becky and for me, these are really interesting facts that don't really change the course of our lives. But as Matthew chronicles the genealogy of Jesus, this is not something that's merely interesting or for some academic pursuit. That when Matthew reveals the most Jewish of the Gospels, and he starts with the genealogy, there are some shocking surprises that are not just interesting but important. And since none of you gasped while I was reading, maybe I need to tell with you what those three surprises are that help to reveal the true identity of Jesus. And the first surprise is that there were four women prior to Mary listed in the genealogy, you need to know, you can go and look in genealogies for yourself, that women were not often mentioned in the genealogies. That the genealogy was traced through the male lineage and you kept that lineage clear. And yet Matthew, in spite of his traditionalist tendencies, 
highlights four different women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Tamar, who experiences not the death of one husband, but of two husbands, and in that day and age, during the time of Joseph and of Judah, in other words, Jacob and his sons, that Judah is supposed to provide, to give a son to help provide the new family for Tamar, and Judah will not give her a son because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to diminish the inheritance any more than it already has. And so he holds out under the promise, and so Tamar has to disguise herself in order to back Judah into an illicit corner to make him make good on his promise. Rahab, who's a Canaanite, who worships foreign gods, who's in Jericho and helps out the spies, and whose profession is one that we would not look fondly on. She's in the lineage too. And then there's Ruth, another foreigner who experienced incredible tragedy and yet follows her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem, is so poor that she can't do anything to provide for food for herself other than gleaning the corners of a rich person's field. She's in the lineage of Jesus. And then there's Bathsheba. We know about her, right? Matthew is giving his commentary that he's not even willing to say her name. He just says it's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. All four of these women, all four of them impure, unclean, outsiders. If you were writing your family tree, would you put these four people front and center in telling your story? And yet that is exactly what Matthew does. He highlights them. That's surprise number one. Surprise number two is the way that Matthew does the genealogy of Jesus. If you go back and you look in your spare time at the ancient genealogies in ancient literature as well as in the Bible, you will notice that they have a particular characteristics of that they focus on the descendants. And yet Matthew does the opposite of what you would expect in something like that. And so when you have a conversation about a family tree, usually what you are doing is you are tracing your lineage back to somebody who is important. So maybe there's some famous historical figure in your lineage and you are trying to trace back to that person to give credibility to the line of who you are. But did you notice that that is not what Matthew does? That Matthew does the opposite of that. It's so subtle that maybe, that maybe you missed it. It's, it's easy to miss it. Is that, did you notice that he starts with the ancient people? He starts with Abraham, and he works his way forward to Jesus. You wouldn't do that. You would start the other way around. You wouldn't say that you're the important person. You would say that Abraham's the important person, that, that David is the important person, and that you are tracing back to them. That's not what Matthew's doing. He flips that on his head, and he is saying that all of history is in a giant crescendo to this person who is being born. 
And so as they would have heard this in their original Jewish context, people would not only have had little smiles and gasps and sideways looks and the fact that there are these four women in the lineage, they would have been going, what on earth is happening as they are saying that history is building to the person of Jesus, not the other way around back to Abraham? That's surprise number two. And then there's surprise number three. He goes through this whole exercise to connect Joseph with King David and all the way back to Abraham, right? Like, that's kind of the point of this genealogy. And what Matthew is about to do in the next story is to say, and guess what? Joseph's not the real father of this child. I remember when I was in college and I had a Jewish friend and we would discuss faith and he said, you know, I just, I don't understand Christianity because, you know, you say that Jesus is a son of David, that he is a son of Abraham, and yet the very next thing out of your mouth is that Joseph wasn't the father. I remember being in college and thinking, wait a minute, I've never actually thought about that. He's a son of David, but his dad wasn't the real biological father. What does that mean? Well, it turns out if you do any research on ancient Palestine or specifically Jewish history and culture, that the adopted child, the adopted son in this instance of a father, bears all of the same rights and privileges and inheritance as a biological child. And that Matthew, in this third surprise, is making a very important theological point. Many people refer to the Korean War in our history as the forgotten war of the 20th century. Partly due to the shorter nature of that conflict for us compared to many of the other wars in which the world that we were involved in. And yet the impact of that war and the aftermath were significant for so many people. It was a soldier who was originally from a farm in Montana who went and was in Korea for multiple years, and towards the end of his multiple years there, he fell in love with an orphaned girl who both parents had died from two different bombing raids. She was washing dishes associated with the base where he lived. They fell in love. Eventually, he got the orders to come back home and with very little transition was taken away. Little did he know at the time that this girlfriend was now pregnant and that one of the great Mars of that culture at that time was having a mixed racial child. 
a horrible name that they would use to describe a child born from a mixed racial background that translates in English to fatherless garbage. And so as she bore the pregnancy and the shame of her village, she endured it for a couple of years and then she could endure it no more. And the mother of that child did something that we would all think of as inconceivable. She put that four-year-old child on a train and told her not to get off until the train stopped and then there she would meet her uncle. But in reality, there was no uncle. And she was sending the child away, abandoning her. The child got off the train and had to learn how to survive on her own for many years. First, she learned how to catch grasshoppers in the rice fields with her bare hands and eat them. And then she would learn how to catch the mice. At times, she relied upon the stranger who had left their kitchen open to sneak in and sleep in the warmth of the night and sneak out before they would wake up in the morning. She endured incredible disease, hardship, and abuse. And at the age of about seven or eight years old, she was lying in a city garbage heap when a Swedish missionary who was trying to rescue babies, infants, stumbled across this little girl, noticed how sick she was. There were even too many babies for her to rescue to get to the adoption agency so that these babies might have a chance. And so after noticing this girl, she turned her back to walk away, and yet that Swedish missionary heard a voice in her own native language that she could not attribute to anything other than the voice of God. This voice said in Swedish, she is mine, which is the name of the memoir of Stephanie Fast. And because of that voice of God, she took that sick child and she nursed her back to health and she took her to an orphanage not in any anticipation that she would be adopted herself, but that she might be able to serve as a helper to care for the babies who might have a chance. This is what Stephanie Fast looked like at the age of nine when she was in that orphanage. At the time that she arrived there, at the age of nine, she weighed 30 pounds. As she continued to care for the babies of that orphanage, she describes one day how a Goliath-like man came to the orphanage with his wife. As he noticed the way that she was caring for the babies, he was looking for a son and had already had the name Stephen picked out. But when he noticed that this girl and the way that she cared for the other children cared for them, she 
She struck his heart, and he reached out to touch the side of her head in a tender stroke of affection. Because of the level of abuse that she had observed, she did not trust this touch. She looked at him with anger and spat in his face. She ran and she hid in her room, expecting to be kicked out of the orphanage. She knew she was in trouble when that couple left and they didn't take one of the babies to go home. The couple came back the next day. She was called to the office, what she expected to be beating or punishment. And the Goliath-like man looked at her and said, with a smile, there she is. This is the one that we want. We want to bring you home. No longer fatherless garbage. She now had a family. And instead of a Stephen, they named her Stephanie, and this is what she looks like today. She was adopted. She was claimed. And she learned the faith even before she could understand English by singing the songs, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and even the great Christmas carols of our faith. That she had a heavenly Father who loved her and claimed her as his own, and that she had an earthly family. She never expected to survive, never expected to live. And yet it turned out she was loved. That she was cherished. Here's Matthew's point. Jesus is the one who redeems our story. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus is the one who shows us that we are all chosen in him. You were not born into God's family you were claimed, you were adopted. That was true for King Jesus, and it's true for you and me. Surprise, this is who he is. Surprise, this is how it starts. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you include people like us and your great heritage, that we get to be a part of your family. Thank you, God, that in a world that doesn't regard the image of your likeness as something to cherish, when people are discarded and lost and tossed to the side, 
that your good news of your great love still shines forth. Lord, all of history built up to your great birth because you are the one that we have been waiting for. And so King Jesus, come to claim us once again to not only be in your kingdom, but to be a part of your great family. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said.